to Wind Up Weekly. I'm Matthew Gorn. And I'm Katie Canfield. And we're here to share the week's news in wine. This week on Wind Up Weekly. Master Sommelier Devin Brogley resigns as chairman of the Court of Master Sommeliers. EU imposes 25% tariffs on US rum and vodka. Burgundy reports a classic 2020 vintage. And as ever, our Wind of the Week. So before we dive into this week's headlines, uh, our week in wine or weeks in wine, as you missed us last week, uh, we were a little bit MIA, um, as some of our more loyal listeners uh, will have made note. And that was because we were on a road trip um, through some uncharted territories. So where did we go, Matthew? Well, we started off by driving to Reno, spending a night there then headed across the built the bleak wilderness of Nevada to Utah, where we visited your brother. And then, because we didn't want to return via Nevada, because there's really nothing there, we went via Idaho and Oregon. And so we had some fun experiences in these very different states. Yes, yeah, so our experiences in all of these places were perhaps uh, a little bit different than they ordinarily would have been, given the pandemic and uh, you know restrictions and restaurants and, and the like. Um, so our first stop, though, in Reno, it showed some promise. You know, I think I've heard from from others that there's a kind of a, a blossoming nightlife there. Uh, really good food, uh, food joints, and places to drink. Um, but unfortunately, uh, they were under a nine o'clock curfew. So when we rolled in at eight thirty, there was really not much that we could see, and we were off in the morning. So that's definitely a place we'll have to return to at some point. And then we were on to Utah, uh, where yes, my brother lives, uh, just outside of Salt Lake City, and it was you know a great time seeing my brother, seeing drinking some good beers. But really, I must confess, we were a little bit disappointed about Salt Lake City, and I think the pandemic had a lot to do with it. Um, but in general, it just didn't seem like there was a whole lot to do there. I agree. We were there for the first snow of the year as well, so it was pretty cold. And we're there on a Monday afternoon walking around Salt Lake City looking for somewhere to eat. And there really isn't there apart from rather ominous Mormons approaching you, trying to get your attention, which we managed to avoid. And we did manage to find somewhere to eat um, in Salt Lake City. But the highlight was definitely uh, going to Park City and High West Distillery and their saloon, which is in Park City, which is kind of a skiing hub. And High West are just a really, really good distillery. They were the first one to open in Utah since Prohibition back in the 90s. And although you don't really think of Utah as a, a drinking state, the, the whiskies that High West make are absolutely fantastic. And visiting their saloon was really good. The food was superb and the way it's presented was excellent. And we had some cocktails. The cocktails were absolutely magnificent. And I wasn't really expecting any of that. I just thought it'd kind of be a tasting bar where we taste some of their really good whiskies. But it was a step above that and a really good experience. Yes, and they do do tours of the distillery, uh, which is not right there in Park City. It's about 20 minutes away. Uh, but they, of course, due to COVID-19, um, they were refraining from doing these in-person tours. Um, but they did do a, a sit-down tasting. So you can still do that if you're ever in Utah. And we'd highly recommend it. I mean, as Matthew said, these whiskeys are fantastic. And the cocktails, the food, everything was top-notch. Absolutely. And these whiskies are widely available uh, domestically as well as internationally. And I really do recommend uh, trying them if you like whiskey. Uh, they really base their whiskies on rye and they've kind of spearheaded the rye revival in US whiskey. Uh, really high class. 
And then from Salt Lake City, we went to Idaho because we couldn't face driving back through Nevada again. So we went to more circuitous route uh, back to California and we kind of fell in love with Boise, didn't we, Katie? We did. Such a great city. I think there, what did we find? There's about 200,000 people that live in the city. Yeah, just over and it's growing as well. And quite a few people retreating from California to uh, go to the easier climbs of Idaho. That's right. And there's wine country right next door as well, which was uh, kind of piqued our interest, as you can imagine. Um, so I actually reached out to a contact of mine at Idaho Wines, and she recommended a, a few wineries for us to visit. And for me, I was sort of on a quest for the Holy Grail, which is the Vickers Vineyard Chardonnay, which Matthew, you'll remember, we sold at Hanging Ditch in Manchester at the wine shop that we met at. And it was one of the best Chardonnays I've ever tasted and the first Idaho wine I had ever tasted. And that was imported by Mark Savage, MW. Um, and then, you know, it was a wine bottled by at the source. So Vickers Vineyard was the winery and also the vineyard. And what we gathered from our trip to Snake River AVA in Idaho was that uh, he's no longer bottling wines under Vickers Vineyard. Um, so we, we haven't confirmed that yet, but um, since we haven't seen any bottles on the shelves or have had trouble finding an actual winery to visit, um, we happened upon another winery who was bottling uh, a Chardonnay from Vickers Vineyard under their own label. And it was quite tasty. So we bought a case, didn't we? Half a case. I managed to uh, kind of rein you in from your uh, impulses. It was a very nice Chardonnay and only $20 or just under as well. Fugition was the um, the name of the winery and across the road from Vickers Vineyard. So we had kind of had a snowy view of the vineyard itself. Uh, but Idaho is still very young wine country only started in the 1970s. So I think we're still figuring things out. I think Chardonnay has potential there, but I think Viognier and Alberino were the two grapes which impressed us in, our, in the tastings that we um, experienced. Those aromatic grapes maintaining their acidity, but having that richness, because Idaho is very hot during the summer, but very cold during the winter. So quite extreme growing conditions. Yep, really high quality wines, I'd say. And I'm very excited to see where that wine region goes. So from, uh, from Boise, uh, we then set off for Bend, Oregon, and we stayed one night there and were able to check out Boneyard Brewing, which Matthew, you visited about three and a half years ago when they were just an operation out of a garage. Is that right? Brewery itself is about 10 years old, maybe a little bit more. And the brewery is called Boneyard because it's in an old garage, which has had a load of junk when they moved in. That's why it's called Boneyard. When I visited, they were looking for a bigger place because they're very popular. And they finally found um, a venue, which they've changed into a, a brew pub. So a much bigger venue, much more spacious, which is very important in these times for sure. And so it was exciting to visit their new venue and have uh, their absolutely fantastic beer. I think they're up there as one of the best breweries in the US, uh, particularly for the IPAs, but they do make a, a small range of other beers as well. And they're not available outside Oregon. So it's worth the pilgrimage to Bend to uh, be able to taste their beers and bring some crowdlers back. Yes, definitely. And buy a little merchandise as well while we were at it. 
And following our pilgrimage to Boneyard, uh, we visited a market of choice. So a grocery that's located in Bend. And I'm not sure if it's, I think it's regional. I, I'm sure it's outside of Oregon as well. But I was, you know, we both were just in enthralled with their wine department. I mean, some of our favorites and wines from all over the world, a huge fortified selection, rosé, you know, wines that you know we wouldn't ever see in anything like a, a Safeway or even a Whole Foods. So I was very impressed and actually spent probably 15 minutes combing their their shelves. Um, and so just, you know, who would have thought in, in Bend, Oregon, that there would be such an, an incredible selection. And I, and I did approach uh, the clerk at the, at the wine section. He's not the wine buyer, but uh, he was familiar with the selection. And, you know, he was very chuffed that I was so intrigued by, by the selection, but he said, you know, well, now we just have to sell it. Cause he did say that a lot of those wines have been sitting there for some time, which is such a shame really, because I think, you know, that's, our job as, as educators is to communicate to consumers how lovely all these wines are, and they're all at really accessible price points. How do we get the consumers to recognize and, and buy these classic brands that the trade is so familiar with? Likewise, I was very impressed by their selection, and I agree with you. It wasn't kind of obscure or a sommelier selection. It's just really good wine, which I really wasn't expecting to find in such a location, but it's just really, really high quality. And when we went to the uh, grocery store, I went straight to the wine selection while you um, picked some food out. And then when you'd finished picking your food, I said, Katie, you've got to go to the wine section. And you did. And then I couldn't get you out of there. You were just perusing every selection. It was very interesting that there was such a really a good choice. And our wine of the week, which we will go to later, comes from this uh, store. Now that we have properly bored you with um, nearly 10 minutes of our weekend wine, on to what you're really here for, the news. On the pod two weeks ago, we reported on the scandal that had engulfed the Court of Master Sommeliers, as several Master Sommeliers were accused in a New York Times article of sexual harassment towards female candidates for the title. At the end of last week, the chairman of the court, Devin Brogley, who is also the buyer for Whole Foods, resigned from his position after also being accused in the New York Times of sexual misconduct. In his position as chairman, Brogley was also a member of the Ethics Committee, which oversees issues such as inappropriate sexual behavior. The sommelier who accused him of having an inappropriate sexual relationship with her was Mary Louise Friedland, who felt more comfortable approaching the New York Times than the court itself. Despite apologizing for not upholding the court's standards, Broglie's resignation was announced as not being directly connected to the accusations. Instead, the court said it had already been planned. Nevertheless, the 15 members of the board all resigned on Wednesday with elections for a completely new board, which will include four non-master sommeliers, and it will take place this coming week. On top of these forced resignations, several female MSs have renounced their position in protest at what is seen as institutional sexism, including Alpana Singh, Pascaline Lepeltier, and Laura Maniac Fiervanti. This follows other MSs resigning from the court after failing to comment on the Black Lives Matter movement. So this begs the question, what's next for the court? 
Well, they're in real crisis. And I think these um, electing a new board is going to be really important, actually electing people who are going to change and move forward. And rather than preserving this uh, white male culture, creating something much more diverse and representative of people who work in the industry. But I think all these resignations and people disassociating themselves from the organization is clearly very damaging to it. And it's uncertain how exactly it's going to go forward if people just don't want to get qualifications or to um, build their careers on this um, award. And with them, female sommeliers resigning and then male sommeliers resigning over Black Lives Matter. There's a lot of people who just don't want to be part of this anymore. And so it's really going to have to reboot itself in order to continue being successful. Yes, and that question also holds true for other organizations in the wine industry. Uh, I know a friend of mine uh, mentioned to me, you know, she's planning to apply for the MW program uh, this coming June. And she thought how, wow, how much more competitive it might be now that, you know, more people will be moving away from the Master Sommelier certification possibly. And What's another route? Well, that might be the MW. And then Mary Margaret McCammick, uh, she and a, a group of female MWs, they, they held a webinar last week uh, called I'm Speaking. And it's sort of an organization that they started. And so we should expect some more um, content to come from that. Uh, so something definitely to check out. And we'll go ahead and link that information in the description um, of the pod. So be sure to check it out. Yes, the one positive of all of this is that it's got people talking. And a lot of these stories which have been hidden uh, for so long that people have known about but just not talked about are now in the open and there's no hiding any longer. And so hopefully um, having these conversations will move everyone forward and the wine industry, as in other walks of life, can actually uh, kind of reposition itself and move into the 21st century as it should have done quite a few years ago. It's Wind Up Weekly, so of course there's more news on tariffs. This week the EU announced they were going to impose 25% tariffs on US rum, vodka, brandy and vermouth as part of the ongoing Airbus slash Boeing aviation spat. The tariffs are in response to those imposed on European goods by the US and include tractors, aircraft, ketchup and orange juice, as well as spirits. The EU says it wants to end the trade war, but the US said it was disappointed by the EU decision and it looks like neither side will back down. And the tariffs have hurt the drinks industry greatly. Exports of scotch to the US have fallen by 34% and of wine by 54%. In turn, exports of U.S. whiskey to the EU have fallen by 41%. So, Katie, this is hurting both sides, European producers and U.S. producers. Do you see any sign of this ending? Well, we were discussing this last week uh, when we learned news of um, Joe Biden's victory and him becoming president-elect and whether that would have any effect on these tariffs. I mean, I, I know that there are other priorities that Biden has on his plate, a global pandemic and recovering from four years under the Trump administration. So perhaps tariffs aren't high on his list, but perhaps it should be, seeing as it is having detrimental effects on the wine and drinks industry, uh, which is already suffering so much because of the closures of on-premise locations. Right. I hope it does make a difference, uh, Biden being elected, though Trump is still in denial. 
But it has to be remembered that the US, whether Democrats or Republic, is very defensive and self-protective. And so Biden isn't suddenly going to give a load of concessions to the EU or any other countries. Um, He's still going to be quite protective of US interests. But he is more open to dialogue with the EU in general. And so hopefully these tariffs will form part of that conversation. And the effect that it has on both European and US producers will be brought home to all the participants in this um, this trade war. But I don't see it changing immediately. But hopefully over time, the relationship between the EU and the US becomes more emollient. No, it will take some time. And definitely Biden will have to uh, get in comfortable with his new position uh, before any real changes are made. But the future is hopeful. And now news from Burgundy and the 2020 vintage, which representatives of the region this week declared as classic. Despite all the external issues caused by COVID-19, the growing season continued as normal with warm, dry, sunny conditions throughout. The harvest is also said to reflect Burgundy's diverse terroir, as ripening was staggered across the region and even within Appalachians. It looks like the wines, both white and red, are going to be full, expressive, but extremely fresh, the ideal balance between wines with a fruity character, yet not being too heavy. So it's good to know uh, that nature continues its course despite seeming that the world is falling apart. I know we haven't quite felt that here in California with wildfires and and the like, but looks like Burgundy is on the up and up. So let's hope that the demand for these wines uh, continues. As I think the latest I heard on one news channel uh, was that in fact, Burgundy prices are kind of flatlining. Uh, there's been a rapid increase, obviously, in, in prices for, for Burgundy, both red and white. And now it seems that that curve is, is kind of flattening out. Right. So we'll see uh, what prices this vintage um, uh, fetches, uh, because it seems like it's going to be very good and everything you want from Burgundy with lots of flavor and character, but still being very fresh and age-worthy. So maybe this will bump prices back up or maybe these wines will actually be very good value. Kind of depends how the economy recovers next year when COVID-19 is more under control. And this is going to be true of a lot of wine regions around the world. But I think in general, 2020 has been a good vintage uh, weather-wise. Obviously, California had the wildfires, but in general, the weather has actually been fantastic this year, warm and dry, but not too extreme. Um, So we'll see how the 2020 vintage vintage fares both commercially and in terms of taste. And now, Katie, for our Wine of the Week, which is? Abacela Tempranillo 2016. Don't be fooled by the name. Uh, This is not a Spanish wine. This wine comes from Oregon. Surprise, surprise, given that we were in Oregon just a couple of days ago. And this came from our expedition to the grocery store that we were talking about, Market of Choice. And I have to say, this was the producer that I was on the lookout for. I marched straight to the wine section and was saying to myself, please have Abacela, please have Abacela. And I was scouring the shelves and I couldn't find it. But there's all this other good wine and actually got a Gamay from Oregon as well. And I had to restrain myself. And then I turned around and I saw this in kind of the Spanish section. Vigna Tondonio is right next to it. And I was just so excited because I do believe that this is the best Tempranillo made outside of Spain. Well, that's 
pretty funny, seeing as when I went and visited the wine section after you pointed me to it, uh, I saw Abasela immediately, and I saw about three different SKUs that they had right off the bat. So well, I, was, I thought it was quite I was looking prominent. so hard that I couldn't see it. Um, so it's like my focus, and I just got distracted by all these other wines instead. And we did buy uh, Viognier by Abasela, which we haven't opened yet. Like you said you found a couple of other uh, um, labels as well. But Abasela is a really um, cool project. Started in the 90s. The story is a bit random. A Florida dermatologist was so obsessed by um, Spanish wine, he couldn't believe that no one in the US was planting Tempranillo or doing so successfully. So over the course of three years in the early 90s, he scoured the US for the perfect site with the help of his son, who's a climatologist, and looking for growing conditions which mirrored those of northern Spain, Rioja, and uh, Ribera del Duero. And he um, concluded that Oregon was the place to be. And it's in um, Umqua Valley, which is just south of Willamette Valley and just north of Rogue Valley. So although we think of Oregon as all being Pinot Noir, which Willem Valley pretty much is, if you go south, it gets warmer and more Mediterranean. And so the climate is very similar to Ribera del Duero in particular. And Tempranillo just works perfectly. And it shows that doing the correct research can lead to extremely good results. Yes, well, the wine is lovely and it was so fun because we were actually traveling with my mother um, through this whole long road trip and Bend, Oregon was our last stop. So it was kind of our last meal enjoying this Abasela Tempranillo. And uh, my mother, who really isn't, you know, a, a wine connoisseur, she she loves wine and is interested by it. So I, I love educating her a little bit about all these different great varieties. And her first impression of this wine was that it was spicy, uh, which for me is a telltale sign of a quality you know, Spanish Tempranillo, is you have those red fruits, but then you have that just subtle spice. And she picked on up on it right away, uh, which made me smile. I mean, and that's in Oregon. Right, and I think it had that really classic vanilla coconut aroma that you get with uh, Spanish Tempranillo as well. So though it's not a carbon copy of Spanish wine, it has those similar characteristics, which make it quite difficult to um, spot in a blind tasting, I think. I think you probably would say, oh, this is probably Spanish. And it shows just the quality and the nature and the character of the wines. And they also make Albarino as well, which is a lot of fun. And so this is a producer that I think that's really got it right and should be much more widely known than they are. And they are available internationally. So go and check them out. Cheers to that. So thank you for listening for our extended version of our Week in Wine and and the headlines this week. We hope you'll join us next week uh, for another Wind Up. So thank you for your support. And we always appreciate your feedback. Thank you for listening. Cheerio. Okay. No, I'm going to start. I'm going to start again. Okay.
So thank you for listening to this uh, extended version of our Week in Wine and headlines. And we hope you'll join us here next week for another wind up. Oh, man, bro.